And hello, welcome back to another episode of The Full Life. We're happy you're joining us. Today we're talking about an important topic that we see a lot in the news. It's critical race theory. Join us. Welcome again to another episode of The Full Life. We're happy you joined us. We're happy that you have a desire to live a full life every day. And we hope that this show gives you a little bit more, gets you a little bit closer as we discuss all the topics where faith and culture intersect. Uh, we hope that we can enlighten you on some of these topics every single time. And today's show will be certainly no different. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have seen a lot of posts online. I've seen a lot of political talk. I've seen a lot of different perspectives on the topic today, critical race theory and how it integrates into education. Where does it come from? We're gonna talk about all of that today. But first, we always start the show with our encouraging word. And today we have a special guest host who's going to do it for us. You know her, here is Dr. Christina Crenshaw. I told Joseph that one of the things that um, I've been studying over the summer was the book of Philemon. And I felt like that was really apropos for what we're talking about today with reconciliation and really loving others well who are different than us. And I had not realized all of these years in church that Onesimus was actually um, Philemon's former slave. So when Paul is writing to Philemon and he is pleading um, on Onesimus' behalf, he is actually writing to his former slave owner. And he is asking him to not only accept him as a brother in Christ and an equal within um, relationship with, with Jesus under the gospel banner, but that there was a previous offense. We don't fully know what that previous offense was, but there was some sort of offense and they had a fallout. And um, one of the things that's really powerful about that is this place of forgiveness on both sides and reconciliation on both sides. And that that um, seems to really only be possible through the gospel. And, and uh, one of the parallels, of course, with that story is the way that the Lord has done that for us, how he has reconciled with us, giving us Jesus to make that possible. So, um, so yes, yeah, so not only the idea of seeing um, everybody as our equal, as our brother within Christ, but also the idea that um, even when there's great offenses, reconciliation is possible. And it is certainly encouraging to know that through Jesus, there is true and lasting reconciliation that can be possible. So we're going to start with today's guest. Dr. George Yancey is a professor in the Institute for Studies of Religion and Sociology at Baylor University. He has published several research articles on the topics of institutional racial diversity, racial identity, atheists, cultural progressives, academic bias, anti-Christian hostility, and collaborative conversations as a solution for racism. Suffice to say, he's extremely qualified to talk about our topic today, and we're thrilled that he's with us. Please welcome Dr. George Yancey. Hello. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for having me. This is great. So I, as always, I like to start at the very beginning because it's uh, I've been told it's a very good place to start. So I want to know, you know, where did critical race theory or critical theory originate? You could say that critical race theory emerged from the Frankfurter School, right. which is on critical theory, basically. Uh, and that is a Marxian perspective, but critical race theory is not necessarily a Marxian theory. 
and criminalist theory basically emerged within the, the legal profession, the legal right. academic realm, and looking at how racial issues, how racism has impacted our laws, even when not explicitly impacting us, implicitly impacting us as far as the legal realm. So, you know, as Dr. Yancey mentioned, historically, these were conversations that were happening just within academia. I would say, you know, prior to 2020, this wasn't really public square conversation. I first encountered critical theories in general when I was earning my master's degree in English, and then I did kind of a dual doctoral program between education and English. And so critical theory is more of like hub, and then there's different spokes off of that hub with, di with different critical theories, um, kind of like queer theory, feminist theory, critical race theory. But Dr. Yancey is, you know, completely correct that uh, critical legal studies originated within law, Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell, and really as a, a lens to examine injustices um, within legal studies. Um, so it is interesting how now that the narrative is in the public square, it has become more controversial and contentious than I remember it being when we were mm. keeping it as at bay and studying it more as like a theory or a way to look through as a possibility. Um, you know, certainly compared to the other theories that I've listed under critical theory, it's less controversial, particularly in, in Christian circles. So I think that would be, an you know, a, a great place for conversation is at what turn did this become so controversial mm -hmm. um, within the public discourse? Well, my understanding is, uh, uh, I think his name is Rufo, uh, Christopher Rufo kind of popularized the notion of quick race theory being a problem. Now, what I want to say is that some of the things that Rufo and others point to are very real problems. There's no doubt about it. And I also want to say that critical theory is like any other philosophy. It is fair game for criticism. I have critiqued critical theory. Okay, so it's not untouchable. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that a lot of what Rufo is saying, this critical theory, is not critical theory. It's more of a derivative of critical theory, or mm. it's more of a complaint people have, and then they say it's critical theory. So that's that's the real problem. I, and I realize that sometimes people use that as a dodge. Yeah, if you're going to critique critical theory, you need to critique critical theory. You want to critique, say, whiteness studies. You want to critique anti-racism, which are derivatives of critical theory. Then critique those things. And so it just became a political football, which if you don't like what your school's doing, you say it's critical theory, and you say get rid of critical theory, and that's what it's become. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because I, I guess at the core of what I was, you know, as I was reading through and researching to make sure I understood for today, too, was, uh, you know, I guess for people, let's, can we define what the actual theory says before all the rhetoric? You know, what does the actual critical race theory say? Well, all right. I mean, critical race theory basically argues that our legal system is set up in a, in a racist manner. And so it's not, historically, it was pretty clear, pretty obvious it was a racist manner. Contemporarily, it still comes out in that way. Now, there's some corollaries to that. For example, one of the corollaries of Kirkwood's theory is that, and it could vary by whoever is arguing this, that the majority group does not allow anything until it's in their own interest. It's called interest convergence. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And so there are, there are aspects of this saying, look, you know, our legal system is set up to favor whites. While we've gotten rid of some of the most overt, most heinous legal laws, we still kept laws that, that help whites. And we're going to keep laws that help whites as long as whites have power. So in a nutshell, that's where it is in the legal theory. Now, that, that's oversimplification. Sure. I don't run myself off as an expert in critical race theory, just to be on the clear side. I mean, I've had to read in grad school and that sort of stuff. I don't, but that's basically where you're going with it. Uh, in your opinion, what would you say are some positive aspects of critical race theory that can actually be productive in society um, or even shedding light on some painful truths for us? All right. I think the most positive aspect of critical race theory in most of uh, in, in the derivatives is recognizing how race still plays a role in, in a society that wants to say race does not play a role. Mm-hmm. That if you get rid of the Ku Klux Klan, that we've gotten rid of racism, uh, of identifying structural racism. I, I think that I think that, that is a very, very needed aspect of it. You know, like a lot of things, the strength also becomes a weakness because what can happen is you can go too far in that direction too. So so as weakness actually becomes a strength in, in a sense, if you get what I'm saying. Critical race theory has been wonderful at exposing the problem that exists. I don't know that it offers a solution to how to get to the other side. And I would love somebody to kind of talk me through that, particularly, and we could, you know, dovetail into this conversation later, but what does that mean for people, you know, who are believers? So we've got Jesus, we've got the gospel of reconciliation. Um, But then, of course, how as believers do we engage with an unbelieving world? That's not a viable solution for, like, say, public school or legal studies. So I guess, you know, to compact the question, um, I see strength and exposing the problem. I don't see critical race theory strength in bringing reconciliation or solutions. Um, And then maybe after that, can we talk about, like, what then, how does the church engage that? Yeah, you know, I think you're right. I think one of my critiques of just academia in general, especially in sociology, is that we're great at identifying problems, but our solutions lack something. Uh, and I think part of it is the presuppositions that go into studies, the, you know, the, the sort of humanistic presuppositions, I think, limit the sort of solutions we can have. And so my best guess, what's going to not be an extra critical theory, is that for them it be a power thing that if we could get the power away from whites and give it to people of color, that will be the solution. I don't think that is the solution for, for reasons I'd be happy to go into. Uh, not that I don't want us people of color to have more power, but I just don't think that's the solution. And, and so that becomes, I think, a, a very problem. And one of the things that I, that those who critique critical theory often don't do is what, you know, Christina just did is just say, okay, what's your solutions? And then look at their solutions. And then I think that would really expose some of the issues with critical race theory. When you, when you mentioned power, I mean, what, what does that look like in terms of the theory? I mean, uh, is it, is it equity or is it like total overthrow of, of systems? I mean, what, what are we talking, what, what are we talking about, you know? Yeah, and here's where you get some of the derivatives. Like, if you look at anti-racism, you get a more clear picture of what that would look like, you know, because the, the you know the people who push anti-racism they talk about what we, what it means to take power away from the majority group and give it to the minority group. Now, I'm not saying all anti-racists have that particular type of solution, mm-hmm. but I think it's close to a lot of their solutions. And so you can get you can get it flushed out, and that gets you know you can critique anti-racism. Which is a derivative of critical race theory. It's an it's an offshoot. It, it, it logically flows, but it's not directly critical race theory. So, you know that that's why I say if you're going to critique anti-racism, critique anti-racism. Don't critique critical race theory. 
we're talking about something they started in academia, not the church. So I think that's very important. So I think it's a lot to say, how can the church fix it? Um, to me, that'd be the equivalent of saying, how can academia solve the Holy Spirit? It just doesn't make sense to me, you know? So I think that's one thing that's helpful. Um, another thing though, I think it's, it's, it's the positives is it gets us to change the narratives. I think one of the things that the church should be about is truth. And largely in America, we don't tell the truth. Um, we don't tell a history that's truthful. You know, we have a lot of our states who still call the Civil War the War of Southern Aggression. We have a lot of our states who ignore, right? Northern aggression, the, Northern aggression. Northern aggression, sorry. Northern, see, I'm a Northerner. I'm giving myself away here, you know? Um, but we also have people who ignore the actual um, secession documents where they say slavery is the reason why we right. left, you know? And we get into these academic debates and now say slavery wasn't, right? Um, so I do think that's something when we talk about critical race theory um, is that we, and I think this is why it's hard for some people because we have to change the story and change the narrative. So for me, I think the importance is how does this help us change the story? Um, fundamentally, I don't think anyone academically would disagree with you that America in Manifest Destiny took land from people that didn't belong to us. And then we enslaved people and made them belong to us, you know? Um, however, that's not the story we tell of about America. So to me, part of what makes this tricky is that we're not just debating academia. We're not just thinking about how the church fits in. We're also now thinking about how to change American history, you know, um, and how we change that narrative. And to me, that's the reason why it's so controversial. When I was reviewing it, you know, I, I always went, go back to recently, like the Tulsa massacre. I will tell you before 2020, I don't think I even knew that it existed, you know? So the idea of integrating diverse stories into education that I didn't get like firsthand, and I was a pretty good student, so if I don't remember it, it probably wasn't there. That was a pretty big deal that we should have learned about, you know? So so that part of it I see as a, po a potential positive of that, you know, the, the impulse to want to integrate these important stories of all of America seems like a good idea. So uh, again, we go back to where, I, and it seems like the answer is the derivatives of where we start going off the track, you know, because the, the uh, original impulse, it seems, was a very positive impulse to want to expand how we teach history, how we expand on everyone's stories in history. And uh, there's the story I, thing again too, right? Because most people, when they Google Tulsa, what do we see? Tulsa race riots. And it's hard to read that story and be like, was that really a race riot? Because that seems like a really like one group of people took out an entire city. You know, um, when we think about race riots, you almost think, at least in my mind, I think about one side, one side fighting and clashing, you know, sure. but Tulsa was really more of a wipeout, you know, and I think that there wasn't only Tulsa. So, yeah, so I think that's kind of why this is so difficult. It's like we're questioning or changing the narrative story. That's the big story. Um, to me, if we're one a church equivalent, it'll be changing as be if someone's presenting something that says God doesn't love us. You know, if we're challenging the big story, that makes us uncomfortable. As Christians, no matter what faith camp we're in, if someone's saying, I have a theory that says God doesn't love you, that changes that big story, all of us should be concerned. So I think that's kind of where I see it as Americans is we're challenging the American narrative that like everyone's equal. We're challenging the American narrative that everyone's been given a fair shot. And I think for us, because that narrative is being challenged, it makes us uncomfortable because the alternative is if they're right and everyone's not been given a fair shot and not been treated equal, 
we now have to live with that as well. It's uncomfortable, yeah. You know, Hank raises some really great questions about how we sort of gloss over American history and we only present the highlight points from the highlight reel. Um, and I think I've always gotten a little defensive as an educator. I mean, name the topic. But I think because I've been in education for 20 years, I know that the sifting of curriculum is such a process. And there is so much to teach, you know, as we continue to progress throughout history, there, there's more and more of it to teach. And so I think then the question becomes like, whose history are we teaching? Like my kids are in a private classical Christian school. So it is a lot of, you know, for the simplification of terms, like a lot of dead white men, right? Because they're basing it on the classics. Um, and so I want my kids to have a more holistic integrated curriculum. But I think the question would be, you know, when and then at the expense of what would have to leave. And so I don't know, you know, when in the curriculum it would be appropriate to sort of bring in the like, hey, here's the other side, you know, because like my kids are so little, I can't imagine that they could handle the reality of our country. Like they're getting such a little golden books version of George Washington and American history. And so then I think high school might be when they're ready for that cognitively and emotionally. And the, but again, the question would arise, like what has to go to fit in a more holistic narrative? You know, I hear a lot, it's all, all the, this theory indicates that all whites are oppressors and racism is here all the time, everywhere, no matter what, no matter what you do. Like, okay, I don't, I'm not sure that that's what it is, <laughs> but I was watching, like I watched all both sides of what, you know, cause I was trying to get a, a perspective on what the argument is here about why it's this big dangerous thing. Is that what it says? Are we all all oppressors all the time? Or is it really just having us take a lens and look at where there still might be bias? You can find anti-racism trainers who say stuff like that. Sure. Just like you can find Westboro Baptists, you know, and say, yes. all right, you're, you're a Christian. Right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I'm not gonna say that that's not out there because it is. I mean, I've heard some, some stuff like that too. Critical race theory doesn't necessarily lend itself to that conclusion. Now, it talks about, you know, our structures and, and our institutions, but it doesn't say that all whites are racist all the time. Uh, and, and I think that that's, that's fair. And so I think it's more important to, if you have a trainer who does that, and once again, they exist. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying these people don't exist. They're, they're mirages. No, they're, they're just like Westboro Baptist is real too. Then address that trainer. Say, you know what? I, I, I think you're full of it. Uh, you know, uh, all whites are not racist all the time. Can you, can you give me the evidence for that? But don't then attribute that to every other. But I have critiques of anti-racism. I'm not a fan of anti-racism. But it's still not fair to critique the worst anti-racist trainer to all anti-racist trainers. Any more than it's fair to say Westboro Baptists represent all Christians. And as Christians, we know, we've heard people say stuff like that. So we know it's like to be misrepresented. And so I say, let's critique it for what it is and not for what it's not. Yeah, I think um, for a lot of us too, it's like everything's such like opposites and polarized, right? Well, um, I think it. for a lot of this stuff is we have to learn it, you know? So I love um, Dr. Crenshaw's point of like, well, when do we introduce this? Well, there are other things we introduce kids to that we don't even think about. You know, the fact that in most Southern states, black kids have to go to schools named after 
Confederate generals, you know, like, how do I explain that to my seven-year-old and my five-year-old, you know? So I think for a lot of Black families, especially under this thing is we have these conversations, you know, it's like, you have to, like, if you live on the street that's named after Andrew Jackson and you're Native American, like, you're going to have some feelings about it, right? Um, and I think the the other thing is that, yeah, you know, I, I, I live with an educator, like, I know curriculum, is, <laughs> but I also know curriculum is very different in Pennsylvania than it is in Texas, than it is in California, right? Um, but I think that the important things is, like, even us as a society, are we humble enough to learn? So, for example, I would love someone who has done education studies and research in Germany. How do they teach about the Holocaust? Like, it's almost the same thing as if we look at this in the faith um, perspective. If someone's going to be a missionary and go to another country, right? Like, the truth is Jesus loves you. But how you teach that message in Bolivia might be very different than Belarus, you know, might be very different than, you know, Liberia, right? So I think that's kind of where, like, that freedom needs to be given to educators as well to say, okay, this is the overall curriculum. This is what we have to do. Now, how do you teach it for this age group? Or how do you teach it and how do you engage it? And I think we as parents have to also do the same thing. You know, for, for a lot of us, like Joseph, for example, is a well-educated, you know, like especially if you look at it in the course of the world, right? But the fact that you can go till maybe age 30 and not know about Tulsa, you know, I, I think that's some of the things that we need to revisit. And I think that's what this is so hard because we tend to like liberty and freedom. That's I always joke that that's the real God in this country. Um, it's liberty and choice and freedom. We just change the name depending on what political party we want to pick this week. Um, mm. But I think that's what we're also attacking here, right? We're saying that like perhaps if your individual liberty, choice, and freedom is distorting truth, perhaps we need to critique that as well. And I actually think the church can help with that. All right. Well, wonderful segue. Hank, let's start there. How can the church teach this? If not critical race theory, what is it? And how does the, what is the church's role here as, as educators of our children in our churches, in our, in our schools, in our households as parents being the first line of teachers? I think that the missing piece to all of this is that we do not have real collaborative conversations on racial issues between people who disagree with one another. And so what happens is that this can't be about power because yes, I mean, I, I teach about institutional racism, historical racism, how people of color are still marginalized in many ways, but I do not think the solution is giving people of color, marginalized people, absolute power. Because I think that we are just as capable of exploiting other people as we've been exploited ourselves. And there's enough examples that we will do that. The key is not just transferring power, but negotiating with one another in ways that are helpful, in ways that bring us together, in ways and collaborations that build community instead of polarization. So learning how to listen and talk and learning how to communicate and learning that this is a value rather than merely winning the political battle of today is, I think, critical if we're going to ever get to any new certain place. And so what we, and by the way, I think this is based in Christian faith, because it's based on the fact of human depravity. That if you believe in secular humanism, a humanist perspective, then you believe that humans are perfectible and we can create this perfect system and we can impose that on others. And so I have the perfect system. You just need to obey this perfect system that I have for you. Mm -hmm. But if I have human depravity, I realize that I may know a lot. I may have a lot of great answers, but I still am, have depravity. And therefore, I need to listen to others so that together we can work together to build something. Everyone has a seat at the table. 
and then we work toward together. And one final thing, this solution is not a solution where what I am saying is that at the end of the day, everyone's gonna have the exact same responsibility. Because I've heard people say, well, that's all you want. No, everyone must have a seat at the table because we, a lot of people out and say, well, you, you whites, you know, you've been so, so you don't have a seat at the table. Those whites are not gonna, why should they cooperate with us? Why should they not believe that we're going to just turn the tables and, and, and oppress them? Because that, that has happened and that, that probably will happen. But I think that given our history and given the racial conditions we have today, the solutions are not going to be egalitarian. We have to leave over that possibility to have the conversation. I think the solution is going to be some sort of compensation, but it's going to be one that's negotiated and not taken. And that's going to make all the difference in the world. So I think that that's a Christian-based solution that we in the church should be pushing. And the more we push it in a post-Christian society, the better we're going to be off as far as trying to deal with the challenges that we have. We can show a solution to a world that's desperately looking for answers. And you started on it. I want to expand just a little bit further. What, you know, what uh, Christian, because I want the audience to hear it, is what Christian principles we integrate into that that uh, that solution you have, or what is it based on? Because I want I want to make sure that people know sure. where it's coming from. I think the first fundamental base is human depravity. That once we understand human depravity, we understand that I can't just get my group of people like minded and find a solution for everyone else. Because the temptation is going to be that I'm not going to create a fair solution. I'm going to create a solution for bald black guys, and that's going to work best for us bald black guys. <laughs> and, 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 that, and you know, and, and that's just because I'm human. You know, yes. And, and, and yes, African-Americans, yes. I mean, none of this is to say that we that we haven't had historical racism, that situation does not exist. None of this says that that is the truth. But giving me total power is not the solution because of human depravity. If you want to go to other Christian principles, think about others before oneself. Is That doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. It's not going away. If I'm try- yes, justice is important, but justice cannot be you know, I don't have to consider what you, what, what, where your, what your needs are, what your concerns are. I can just impose my concerns on you. That can't be justice. Christian principles is I consider the other's needs at least as well as my own and more than my own. And they should consider my needs more than their own. And what sort of world would we have if we were all trying to do that instead of trying to defend our own? So I do think this is a Christian-based solution as opposed to a more secular solution which is based on human perfectibility, that we can create a perfect society and then we can tell people on how to act in this perfect society. Yeah, I don't know that I have, you know, the answers any more than anybody else would purport to um, on this. I think where I see, again, I'm thankful that this shines a light, which is what critical theories in general are supposed to do on the basis of inequity and depravity and where there's brokenness. Um, but I think particularly for Christians, going back to that heart of forgiveness and reconciliation, um, and sort of as I started the show with Philemon and Onesimus, um, that idea of like, no matter what the history is, our goal in Jesus is unity and reconciliation. Um, the whole of the biblical narrative speaks to that, but particularly the New Testament. And I'm thinking, you know, Romans, Paul's teaching on that as well, that we are, you know, one in Christ. Um, I want to offer just kind of this story that I think kind of illustrates where we see a problem. Our babysitter, who is now a junior, went on a mission trip this summer with her Christian university to the Dominican Republic. 
And I so wish that they had done sort of a diversity and sensitivity training beforehand. Um, they, I think they dropped the ball in this. But she tells me the story of how she's serving the Dominican Republic and they were asked to bring like a gift to give to a kid at the at the end. And my babysitter went to, to Target and she bought a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Barbie doll. And you can already see where this is going. So one of the girls on her team railed her for this. And, um, you know, our, our babysitter was, was crushed because her heart intention was just to give a gift. But clearly, like we know sort of like the bigger macro picture that that is considered a microaggression, you know. And so I think the Christian perspective on this would say, I see your heart. I want to affirm. Let me help you think about how next time maybe choose a Barbie doll of color that that would be better representation for this little girl. Um, and so I think that that's where there, I'm seeing this breakdown within critical theory where there's not as much compassion and grace and forgiveness for those who are committing microaggressions, who are making mistakes, who just don't know what they don't know, and where the church can step in and say, hey, in love, can I help you think about this? You know, like, well done, good and faithful servant for doing your best to love others. But can I give you another perspective to this as well? So, and kind of back to the adults. I don't know where the adults were on the training beforehand, because a little bit of training probably would have helped with that situation. You know, when we were getting a Barbie for my daughter, who's, you know, white and has brown hair, I and we had to pick which one we wanted, I said, no, pick one that looks not like her because I want her to have dolls and have toys that don't look like her too. So it looks like the world. I mean, so that's where I think just reflecting critically on the other hand is, is as parents, you'll know, okay, what am I, how am I breaking down any implicit stuff that may, I might be forming in my, in my child? I mean, I, I mean that's how, that's how I looked at it when we had to make that choice. I was like, no, let's let's make a choice here. That's not let not get one that looks like her on purpose, you know. So, but I think that's where the church needs to step in and say, like, because of human depravity, you're going to miss it. You are going to miss it more than you get it right in life. And we've got sure. to have grace and compassion for that. And those are words that I think, you know, kind of the secular world has co-opted, but they've got to have different meanings for us when we're rooting it in scripture. So, um, yeah, so again, kind of that dynamics within, you know, Philemon that we're seeing, where Paul is saying, I am asking you to accept this man as a brother in Christ, as a co-equal. And I'm asking you to break down social stereotypes. I'm asking you to break down social structures based on the gospel. And so again, that's so it was revolutionary then, and it's still revolutionary, but we want to be revolutionary people for Jesus, right? You know, and, and that's where the world is not even trying to to walk that same road or engage that same narrative. I think part of it too is um we as a church haven't done that either. You know, um I think that if you look at the history of Christians in this country, we haven't done what Paul asked Onesimus to do. You know, we haven't looked at each other as truly brothers and sisters, as truly members of one another. Um, and I think that that's something we have to own. I think our history actually helps us, Christian history. Um, most of our reading of the New Testament ignores race, at least in America, at least in non-Black churches that I've been a part of, um, when in actuality, that's pretty 
crucial in a lot of these arguments that they have or discussions or councils. Um, so I think even just looking at the early church and what did it look like, you know, so the fact that Paul can ask that of Onesimus or, or Philemon and like in that story and that telling that letter means that their church looked a lot different than us. You know, if we put that in our setting, it would be maybe literally someone from the north writing someone in the south and saying, I need you to set your slaves free. What? You know, like that's not going to happen, right? Um, or maybe. Um, but yeah, so I think part of it is, and I think this is what the church can do, right? Is to, to know that even within our own history, we have a Genesis to Revelation story where God brings us all together. And so we have to take ownership that we as the church have failed and we as the church can do better. Um, I think while laws maybe at best can integrate, um, only God can reconcile. So I think that part of it has to be not only macro, but also micro, right? Like David said, search me and know me, see if there's any wicked way in me, lead me in the way of the everlasting. I think we all have to do that. Um, but I also think that part of this telling of story is how do we make space, right? For these narratives that are not only uncomfortable, but it kind of forced us to realize that we failed, that we sinned, and we continue to do that, right? Like, how do we truly put others before ourselves? Um, and I think the last principle I want to hold on to is Jesus talks a lot about heart, right? Like the idea that like the mouth will speak what the heart is full of, right? And like your heart in, in essence will always give you away. And so I think when we talk about grace, um, it's not just about relationship, uh, but it's about what comes out of the heart. You know, if I'm walking down the street, and someone says, hey, boy, come here, you know, depending on who says that will probably dictate my reaction. Depending on the tone they say, it will dictate my reaction. Um, if it's someone I grew up with, probably not a big deal. If it's one of my cousins, not a big deal. Um, honestly, if it's an old white guy who I don't know, that's going to change everything, right? So I think that's the... Um, that's some of this stuff that we have to also hold on to is that like part of telling the story is owning where we fell, asking God to transform us, you know, yes, trusting the Holy Spirit to reconcile, but then, you know, what are the steps we can take to kind of come together? Um, we might not be able to conquer the macro, but I think we can conquer the micro as in like, what it can I faithfully yes. do or what can my church faithfully do? What can my parish faithfully do? What I hear sometimes in some of the resistance to this theory is that we don't want to acknowledge that we failed as a, like in, even in the teaching of history, we don't want to acknowledge that this is not a great land. And I don't think that's necessarily what we want to say either. It's like, I think there's an amazing, th there's some amazing concepts that America really, really blew the lid off of in the world that I thought that, that I acknowledge and love the history of. But there are some things that we really didn't do well, and I don't think they can't coexist. You can still be a great nation that did some amazing things, but also have flaws. Uh, and I think when I hear a lot of resistance to that, it's either, nope, it's this or it's that, and, and there's nothing in between that. And, and just to bring it back to the educational theory, I just feel like it, there, it, it could be both and, really, and I think that's your fullest picture of what, what America is for the most amount of people, where it was wrong, where it was right. I wanted to go back to you, George, for a second and, and talk. You talked about conversations, and, and we certainly have those conversations on this show, but how do people start or how do people engage in those questions? Do you have suggestions about how to really honestly begin these questions in, in maybe not an awkward way? I mean, like, how do they, how do they have these conversations with people? So they get to the next, they get to, you know, really productive conversations. I would say it has to be very intentional. 
You know, it's not just something that it's not going to happen unless you, you know, intentionally have that conversation uh, with, with, with it. It's sort of like uh, talking to kids about the birds and the bees. You know, you just say, well, when it comes up, I'll talk about it. You probably won't ever talk about it until the kid already knows everything he needs to know at 16. So, you know, we're going to be very intentional on how we're going to do this. And I would say what I, one thing I'm working with churches is, all right, here's the story out of the headlines. What do you think about that? Teach people principles on how to actually listen, how to communicate in an effective manner, not a not an overly look. Some things we're going to say are going to be painful. There's, there's no way around that. We don't have to be painful when we don't have to be painful. In other words, we don't have to be gratuitously uh, abusive or or and and by the way, that's counterproductive because when you're gratuitously abusive, people shut up. They shut off. They don't listen to you. So we can learn how to talk to people in ways that they can hear us. How, what's important to them, then we can we sort of touch that value so they can hear us. How can we listen to what they're saying, and how can we make sure we're articulating what, where they're actually coming from? These are sort of things that I've been training some churches on how to do and trying to have these sort of conversations with some stories or controversies and seeing where it goes along. With the idea that if we learn how to talk to each other right now when there's not a pressing issue on our particular group, when there is the next controversy, we will have the experience on how, okay, we had these conversations before on other issues. Can we have a conversation on this issue, you know, on this police shooting we have, on the, the supposed critical race theory being implemented in this junior high school, on whatever. Can we have that conversation now and try to figure out how we're going to move forward on that? And I think the practice makes perfect. And we start having conversations now when, when there's not a lot at stake other than maybe our own opinion, that when an issue comes up and there is something at stake, we're better prepared for it. Just like shooting basketball. You know, you shoot basketball the first time, iron unkind. You have to keep shooting at it until you can start getting the ball in the hoop. we got to just practice at it at this point. Uh, George, you had mentioned earlier that you don't, you're not a fan of the modern derivatives of critical race theory. That, you know, maybe it started as one thing, but sort of some of these offshoots are maybe not the answer. You're not a fan. Can you give us some resources? Can you talk about some places that you do feel like are doing racial reconciliation well? One organization that I know of, and they're in my forthcoming book, is an organization called Game Changers. And basically what Game Changers did was they took people from the community, took police officers, put them together, had an event, a sports event, and then had them come down and have a conversation. And so they are trying to do what I'm talking about doing. Now, I don't know how well they train people for the conversation or anything like that. I do know that there's an organization called Better Angels that's not concentrated on race, but they're concentrating on having better conversations in a polarized society. So there are bits and pieces, people doing this. And what I would like to see is a more concentrated effort led by Christians, but not limited to Christians, to try to have better conversations. Sounds like it's just about doing the work. It's just about, you know, kind of staying in the game. And and so you can change the game. You have to stay in it in order to change it. Um, the, I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about uh, before we go into the closing is the idea of um, equity. Uh, um, because I think that's not quote unquote equality. It's different. It's slightly different. It's understanding what, how to give equity to groups that not necessarily have the same advantages, you know, like, like Hank mentioned, you know, have the same education I had or so forth and so on. 
Um, how does that um, play into our conversations as Christians? How does that play into our approach to recon racial reconciliation? Okay. You know, equity is another one of those terms that only just yesterday came up. Uh, and my understanding of equity is, you know, equality is if you just say, okay, everyone's equal now. Equity is if you lift the lift everyone up to where now they can compete. And so one example is in the military. There's a book called All That You Can Be by Moscow and Butler. And they look at the army. What the army does is not to say, hey, everyone's equal. It says, okay, we're going to test you all right now before you get into the army. Oh, you need this. We're going to help get you up to here. You're now you're equal. Now everyone go after it and may the best person win. So to me, my understanding, that's what equity is. Yes. I think part of the conversation is, okay, what, what do you do to create equity? Because obviously people have different ideas and the answer is probably somewhere in the middle between what one group says and what another group says. So, you know, we need to hear each other out because what we could happen, have happen is, okay, we need this to equity and another group says, well, you know, you haven't considered this as well from our point of view. Yes. You know, maybe we don't have all the advantages you think that we have, which, which I think is a fair point for them to bring up. And so I think we have... You know, we can't just say, I'm going to do equity. I've decided what the equity is. Here's what we need to do. I think we're better off saying, okay, we need to do equity. How do we do that? Let's talk about what it is and let's figure out how. I think that's a much better approach than dictating what equity is because we, and the research shows us, if you dictate people what their solutions are going to be, they're going to rebel and they're going to sabotage you. So have the conversation to, to figure out how we're going to get to that equity. I think it's a much better way to approach mm -hmm. it. Just to bring a fair balance and dynamic to this, I think that equality is actually a lot easier to attain than equity. And so it's that tension of like the, you know, trying to bring kingdom on earth, but knowing that we never really will be able to the side of heaven, right? So it's like, you don't, you don't stop trying, you don't stop striving for that, but also in reality, knowing that you're never going to fully accomplish that in a, you know, a limited fallen world. So for me, I actually feel a lot of pressure as a upper middle class white woman to make sure that I'm stewarding what I've been given well. And I think that's a part of the equity conversation that we don't have a lot. And it's that place of like, not necessarily kind of removing guilt rather than piling it on and saying, how then do you steward your your kingdom giftings, whether that's your educational aspect, as that's kind of a couple of times, Joseph, um, whether it's financial stewardship of the resources you've been given. And so I think that that then asks the heart to engage the equity conversation less of like, how do we make things even as to what is your kingdom stewardship with the resources that you have been given? I think that goes back to the, frankly, the garden. I mean, because we were given all of this and told to take care of it. And so to me, in my mind, that what you've been given, you should be taken care of because we, we are called to be good stewards from the moment we were created of what God and what God has entrusted to us. Um, so I think that is in a really valid part of the argument. And I think it's I think it's an important uh, thing that I think we can all do without without I think you can change it in your house. You know, you know, you don't even have to, you know, you, that's step one, but it's a great step one if you really think about taking care and honoring those blessings that you've been given. Um, and then, and then use those blessings as stewards to have the conversations to to maybe create create a uh, create equity in where you can create. It is complicated. 
I'm not, uh, you're absolutely right. Creating equity is complicated and hard. And I live with an educator. She was, she's a history educator of world history. So we have the, we have these conversations a lot about how she's going to do this and how she's going to create equity and, and how that interacts with the public school system. And it's so complicated to, to do all that. But what's not complicated um, is having conversations as, as George points out, that's not complicated. Now it's uncomfortable. Um, I will tell you that having to, having now done this show for over the last year and a half, I am so much more comfortable having these conversations and have been wholeheartedly changed um, from where I was before doing this show. So the conversations work, you know, the, the conversations of saying, here's where I'm coming from, I don't understand, but please listen. I want to listen and hear what you what I don't know about you is so, so important. And I, and I think Jesus is the ultimate example of that. You know, he he didn't uh, condone behavior in every place he went, but he always listened to where they were first before he started to change their heart. And so I don't think you can change anyone's heart without listening. Now let's talk about the fullness of prayer. I usually pray the morning every day. It's how I begin my day. I'm not saying everyone needs to do that, but it's worked out well for me. And really the only time I've not done that the past several years is when I when we had our kids. And if you had little kids, babies, you know that sometimes in the mornings you just don't have time to pray, literally. You can't plan on getting up early enough to pray uh, when you're getting up every three hours uh, to feed them and stuff. But other than that, I really, really uh, do what I can to pray every day. And I feel it, it sets me, sets my day right as I move forward. Uh, and, and so for me, that that's that critically important that I, that I do have a prayer. Uh, and I, I try to incorporate in my prayer Thanksgiving. I uh, try to incorporate, you know, obviously, you know, asking God for the day, uh, praise, you know, I, it's 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 a is it you know I won't go on how long you know but it's not a it's not a short quick prayer I, I really want to engage with God before my day begins and then go on to my day and it's a discipline that I've had now for for many years. Thank you for that, um, and thank you for joining us again, uh, Dr. George Yancey. And uh, you said there was a new book coming out. Did you say? Did I hear you say that? Do you want to tell people about it before we leave? Sure. Yes, I, I have a new book coming out early next year, uh, late Jan late February, early March, called Transcending Racial Barriers. And it builds on some of my previous work that I've done and lays out some of the scientific research as well as a Christian challenge for the sort of cloud conversations that I've talked about. Also has a couple of practical chapters on how we might engage in that. So feel free to look for it. Thanks. Of course. And thank you so much again for joining us. Please look for his book. Uh, I think, you know, again, I've learned a lot uh, today as always, and I'm so grateful to have these conversations every week. Um, before we close, I'll leave you with uh, just, I can't, I won't say the whole prayer because it's too long, but I want to leave you with the beginning of the prayer of St. Francis, um, because it always is, you know, as you engage with conversation, as you engage in reconciliation, as you engage in in any of these, in, in stewardship. Sometimes stewardship's hard to take care of everything you need to take care of and honor God in that way. But always ask to make me a channel of your peace, oh God. I love that prayer. Where there's light, where there's darkness, let me be light. 
and there's so many more beautiful examples in that prayer, but I will leave you with that. And of course, we thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time for more conversation on The Full Life.